Welcome to the Fred Tech Bite Podcast. I'm your host, Andres Mendoza, and with me is my co-host, Mark Walker. And thanks to Fitzy.org and Root for hosting us. Root is a one-stop public-private partnership to jumpstart new businesses and energize innovation in Frederick County. Dig deep, cultivate tomorrow. Thanks, Mark. So it's been a while since we had the last podcast. A day or two. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes the summer, you know, it is summertime weather. Summertime and everybody's out somewhere. That's right. So I, our next guest is Steve Fluck, President and CEO of iHire. And we had him, you know, had him on to talk about iHire and everything those guys do. A local company, they've been here, what, 20 years? 20 years, and they're using one of the other companies that we interviewed earlier, too. Junkinet, that's right, you know, for a lot of their cloud infrastructure stuff. But, you know, the conversation we've talked about, besides their infrastructure and their tech team and tech stack and stuff like that, the way they implement Agile and and Kanban as a hybrid, you know, for all their employees and stuff like that, it's it's pretty interesting to see that. And I always find it interesting when companies say they're they're agile, which they are, they can be, but every company mm-hmm. is pretty unique, right? Exactly. Compared yeah. to other companies. Um so to see how what works for them is is very cool because you start to see elements that, oh, we we do that, or maybe we should do that as well, right? But to see that on top of their A-B testing, analytics, and experimentation And his method, description of all of that was very useful. Absolutely, yeah. So, you know, an environment that they can experiment, anybody can have an idea, they can propose an idea, they it can hypothesis one, mm-hmm. and then they can test it and run it through the mill to say, is this something that actually would resonate with our you know, clients, our employers and things like that? Or is it something that just wouldn't work? Right? It's a company about people that manages their own people very well. Right. Yeah. So I was very excited to talk about all those items with them. Um, and I hope you guys are excited to, to listen. So take a listen. to the podcast, Steve. Look, how are you today? I'm doing great. I, I'm a new fan of the podcast. I'm pretty well all caught up and uh, happy to be here. Yeah, thanks. I'm, I really appreciate you coming out and talking about yourself and iHire and whatnot. So let's go right to it then. If you can talk about iHire, at least put it on a billboard, something about it, what would it look like? Putting it on a billboard, that's challenging. Squeeze <laughs> it in in 20 years of history into, into mm-hmm. so few words. It'd be something along the lines of don't waste time on unqualified talent. Recruit industry-focused candidates today with iHire. Let me go a level deeper here and explain myself there. So first of all, with not wasting time, especially on the companies that need to hire and recruit talent, we see it time and time again that those employees that are charged with that task completely overwhelmed. In large corporations, you have a team of talent acquisition specialists. Right. They have too many requisitions. It's a lot of a lot of work to go through the entire hiring process. And then as you kind of go down the different different segments of customers, you get all the way to the mom and pop that doesn't even have an HR specialist. Right. It's just an owner or perhaps the front desk receptionist. And, and this is a side activity, but it's an extremely important one. You got to hire the right people to bring an organization. It's very costly to make a make a poor hire. So it kind of starts with with not wasting time. We spend a lot of of our time trying to iterate on the products and the services to save clicks, save as much time for our employers as possible. And the second part is, is qualified talent. And the way we achieve that is, is through presenting them with industry-focused, experienced candidates. And we do so by maintaining 56 independently branded career sites. And we have verticals for construction, for Healthcare, there's actually six to eight sites for healthcare. We have a site dedicated to oh, tech, which wow. you might, you might okay. be interested in. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
dental, optometry. I mean, the list goes on and on. We cover almost every type of role. There's a, there's a few gaps, but what we find is candidates that really hone their craft, that are really into their discipline and their career. They enjoy that that niche experience mm-hmm. where all of the content is is tailored for them, not just job content, but career advice, online courses that they could take, et cetera, which in some ways means that hire is not a fit for everyone. And, and I'm not afraid to say that uh, if you're if you're the kind of person that will take any kind of job, maybe you hop from industry to industry um, and that's that's your thing. Um, that's OK. Uh, we don't have a great experience in, in that use case. A lot of the general sites where they'll recommend you any kind of job, you'll see content for any sort of, of career. Right. Um, that's those experiences are, are fine. They work well. Um, our candidates are typically more experienced and, and they uh, are really passionate about what they do. Tagging off on that, could you go into more detail about the verticals that you mentioned? Sure. Uh, our platform is, is multi-tenant and there's 56 independent sites. Now, over the years, we've, we've had over, well over 60. Mm-hmm. We've kind of compressed them at times. We'll merge sites. Uh, we'll, we'll add new sites as, as needed. But at the moment, we're at, we're at 56 right now. And the message and the marketing is, is, is different different for each one. And that's actually what makes it a challenge to have a billboard for the candidate. Yeah, actually, with your with your leading question, I think that's I, the longest I, billboard we've I, had since I, we started. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to favor the, <laughs> no, the, the, the employer side because the, the message for candidates is is different, right? Right, depending on the industry that you're going to. Mm-hmm. And so, I, I was gonna gonna say like, why, why can't you do and not to get too into the tech side just yet, right? Sure. Why can't we just do filtering or or whatnot between industries? But when you had mentioned that there's more to just a job list, it's resources, it's education, it's things like that. Then I started to get this picture of like, well, you know, I'm in the tech scene and I'm focused on tech. I don't need to have construction or project management from a different industry altogether. And I think that would be a lot more efficient for me to see things like that, right? That's right. It saves you as a candidate time as well. It's a cleaner experience. It's not as complicated right. to navigate. And I guess on the employer side as well, when you're looking for a specific candidate, let's say as project manager and on the tech scene, you're not going to get applicants from other industries and whatnot, right? That's correct. Okay. That's correct. Some of our employers, they'll start, they, they, they learn about iHire through one of those niche sites, mm-hmm. um, say it's for accounting and, okay. and, and they happen to run a Google search looking, you know, where should I hire accounts? They may start their experience with our brand on IR accounting. And then at some point, if they have a realization, oh my goodness, this, this company could help help us with some of our other hires that could help us with our, with our tech team, then uh, they'll navigate over to our corporate brand and uh, have the have the full experience and the ability to tap into any of those talent pools, really. Right. Cool. So let's talk a little, little bit about yourself, Steve. So you're, you're the CEO, you're the president, mm-hmm. right? How long have you been working at iHire for? About eight years now. Okay. Um, I'm a technologist. I love technology. Uh, things, are, things are different now. I, I still, mm-hmm. leading a tech company, I get, I get the chance to participate especially on the product end. Mm-hmm. Uh, but prior to that, I had a long history of consulting for both public and private sector companies. And really what led me to iHire is I wanted to be able to specialize and focus myself as a consultant. And, and perhaps uh, perhaps you, you can uh, relate to this, mm-hmm. but I, I mostly ran a line of business related to IT support services and then custom software solutions. And, and year after year, I was developing and architecting so many different kinds of solutions, you know, Medicare, Part B systems, all the way to real property management systems, association management systems. And they're all different. Right. You know, in order to really do something well, you have to own it and you have to keep honing it really right. at, at the same time. 
And I got kind of spread thin on that. And I, I really wanted to work for a product company that I could come in every day and try to make this thing better, try to achieve perfection, knowing that that's never going to happen. Right. But but we can always try. Yeah. And you get really close to it, too. You know, like, mm-hmm. like you said, and I will get into this a bit later, but I know you guys do a lot of experimentation, you know, like A-B testing and yes. analytics, stuff like that. And that's something that's very exciting because it's not enough for you to put a product out there and it's, you know, OK, what's the market think and things like that. It's like you're actively experimenting, you're actively refining it, actively making it better for both the employers and the people that are looking for jobs. And that's that's very exciting stuff or whatnot. So with, you know, your, your, your time at iHire, what have you seen, you know, change in terms of that, that, that industry? Because while it's recruitment, right, there's, there's many different like verticals in there, you know, healthcare, IT, stuff like that. What's a general consensus there that has changed maybe in the past five years in that industry? Certainly we've been impacted by the movement in mobile. So mm-hmm. at this point, our mobile traffic represents it's about 70% of traffic wow. is mobile. Um, and you guys probably really don't. You have that smartphone. It's joined to the hip. And uh, we get a lot done throughout the course of our day, mm-hmm. uh, usually not in concerted efforts, but it's just constantly every 15, 20 minutes here, you're on that phone for oh, something. Yeah. You expect some and of your applicants are doing this during their lunch hour uh, when they're not at a computer. All they have is their phone. Well, guess what? Yeah. It, the number one time frame for a can to come and engage with our platform is Monday mornings between 9 to 10 a.m. in their time zone. So you know what that means. Candidates are dragging themselves to work, getting that cup of coffee, frustrated. Could be, yeah. Taking a peek at those emails. That's the nature of it. And that's, that's not really an industry secret, but that is... That's how it works. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would absolutely. be an excellent research hypothesis to prove that out. Probably the data would back that up. Well, we, we've A-B tested it many, many times, and we keep coming into that to that sweet spot. So now you said um, 70% of your users are on mobile, right? Mm-hmm. Just looking out there. What's the experience like on mobile? I, I've used your site recently, probably just, let's say, on a web page and you know, not so intricately just yet. But how does the mobile experience look like? Is it an app or is it just a web view? It's just a web view. Okay. About 90% of the functionality that we offer to candidates is available through the mobile experience. Mm -hmm. Um, We decided to specifically design and cater to the small form factor device a few years ago, right about the time when when responsive interfaces were starting to get a lot of of news. And and I cannot deny the efficiency that comes with a responsive interface. It sounds beautiful to have one presentation layer that will flex to any any size device. We had great success developing our own mobile site itself. And then over time would A-B test and try to get further and further towards a paradigm where it's just one big responsive interface. And where we're at right now, is tablet and desktop has a responsive interface and we've yet to be able to beat our mobile interface when it comes to tailoring a responsive uh, design accordingly to meet both that really small form factor and, and the so desktop. So it detects what end device is communicating with it and it presents something for the form factor to detect. As- absolutely, yeah. yes. And, and, and what you might find is that the, the mobile users, their mindset is a little different. They're, they're not necessarily looking for all of the bells and whistles they don't want to digest all of the, the data and the, and the insights and the content we could provide. They need a very streamlined, simple presentation while they're on mobile. And then we'll see that they hop over to desktop a lot of times to apply, although that is that is changing some. Okay. You used to have a pattern where on your phone, you used it to find leads for jobs. 
right save them. decide save them and then right. you, yeah you, you go go home at nighttime you're like i'm gonna apply to some jobs now <laughs> you sit down and, and, you, and you get it done and we're seeing that change a little bit okay um over time a lot of people at this point have only smartphones not not so much uh here in the u.s but of course worldwide right it's right. it's huge yeah. Do you ever imagine um, a scenario in which job hunting could be as streamlined as like dating sites or dating apps today, where I'm just swiping right or left depending on what interests me? Um, it might. And keep in mind, like that is just very, very quick. You know, like so. Imagine, imagine the kind of things that a person would see when they're on a date. Let's say, you know, on a dating site, I'm swiping left or right. It, it's very quick, probably five to 10 seconds that it takes me to make a decision. Mm-hmm. What kind of elements do you think would have to be there just for me to make, you know, the title or something else? Really would need to condense the information and, and get further away from job ads, which mm-hmm. HR team, sometimes the marketing team if, uh, will write them. And they're, they're a, it's a long form narrative. It's almost romanticized a little bit, right? right? We would need to get further away from that and into a very utilitarian presentation of title. Here are the top skills and need. Here are the requirements where you're looking at almost in a tabular or data sheet right. kind of format with the same presentation as well, right? Because, you know, then not everyone writes a job at the same way. There's a lot of variety. Mm-hmm. But in order to help our brains synthesize that information and make that, that quick determination that quickly, we'd have to simplify it dramatically. Do you see, you see the industry going that way at all? Or is we, that, we, we talk about it internally quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, you can swipe left and right on ours. It just doesn't discard though, <laughs> or automatically apply. <laughs> but it's hard to, you can page through with the swipe. I figured if that's what you yeah. like. Do you offer <laughs> advice to hiring agencies and employers as to what to put in their job announcements? Great question. One of our differentiators in general is our service. And we take real pride in that both on the candidate side and on the employer side. So our customer success team on the employer side will will engage with the employer and help them tweak their job ad itself. It's, it's really a needed service because they're not marketers by nature, but you need to be a marketer in order to present this opportunity in a very attractive way. Make them think through the list of skills they really need. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And we we actually have a, we have a feature called the job optimizer. So when you post your job, we'll take that and use NLP and some other technologies and and try to show them, Hey, here for this type of job, these are oftentimes the skills that other employers Mm. want in the position. And that way they can go back in and and edit that in a self-service fashion. And they say, yes, I need that too. I just didn't think to list it. Yeah. We offer services to the candidates as well. So if you need advisory or coach, coaching through uh, the job seeking the process and everything okay Mm -hmm. and then the the resume as well i mean i'm assuming as a candidate when i'm submitting a resume and submitting that in there it it, a lot of times an algorithm read through keywords right Mm -hmm. and flag me as a percentage in terms of is this candidate strong or not right do you guys help with that as well? So yes, on the employer side, we have an applicant score. And when, when the applications come in, they can look at all those applicants and kind of rank them based on our algorithms projection of match for their requisition. But an employer could select a candidate that came up 80% on the match because of some other factor that wasn't included. 100%. Yeah. yeah. And, and a lot of that goes into the intangibles as well, especially exactly. with yes. soft skills. Yeah. So it's one right. thing to right. look at a developer and say that they need .NET at least five years, but then if if they really need someone collaborative or a great communicator and someone presents that in the resume that, that they have those soft skills, yeah. 
some employers rank that higher than others. And, right. and those are the kinds of intangibles that make it a very interesting and complex challenge to, to supply technology to this problem. Yeah, it's not enough for you to just look for keywords, like you said, like five years.net, you know, any other kind of stack in there. And then, okay, here's your ideal candidate because they may not mix well with your culture. You know, there's, there's other stuff that you have to look into, like the intangibles, um, soft skills and things like that. And, and the matching algorithm on the candidate side for jobs is, is actually more complex. Okay. Uh, so can, candidates are, are in a number of different personas, whether you're willing to relocate, what is your driving distance or commute time that, that you're willing to spend? When is the last time you've engaged on our site? And that's that's helpful to us because we will actually modify the results based on the age of the of the requisition. If you haven't been to our site in seven days, then it's important for us to show you and, and try to push and promote the last seven days of new jobs. But if you were just there yesterday, then the algorithm needs to accommodate for that use case and, and right. not push those jobs that were last week's So jobs. for the applicant, they're getting what's fresh, what's new. That's right. Yeah. What's what's most relevant to them. Right. But that that is an exponential challenge. I mean, relevance to you, it, it could be completely different to, than to someone else. It, it needs to go beyond just what's on your resume mm-hmm. yeah. um, and, and what your what your goals are. What are the marketing channels you guys, you know, go through for, I guess, candidates and things like that? In terms of how, how we acquire candidates. Right. Okay. right. So there's, there's, of course, word of mouth and sort of the virality that comes along with any kind of internet, internet-based uh, product or service. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a number of campaigns and Google and, and Bing and at, for SEM purposes. Um, in our space, there's really interesting activity where we're partnered with a number of, of brands that you would probably immediately think that we're competitors to, but there's a syndication of jobs. Okay. And so, and that, that's a good point f- for the listeners too, that not, not every site has every job. That's actually doesn't happen. Even the largest site that you, you're probably thinking of. Sounds like doesn't the listing service really doesn't have, <laughs> yeah, all the jobs by far. Uh-huh. Um, and so recognizing that that's a problem and, and each, yeah. each company like ourselves right. desiring in a utopian way to have all of the jobs, we're willing to share the job content yeah. with each other. Uh, through syndication and data feeds, and that way we can aggregate the content in one spot and, and try to get as close as possible as having having all the jobs. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty cool stuff. Let's let's get into the tech then. You know, see what kind of tech stacks do you guys work with. Um, I know you mentioned before that you guys work with a tech team of about twenty five people. Yeah, right. Twenty five or so engineers, operations. So twenty five engineers. You guys are supporting up to what fifty six different sites, mm-hmm. right? So that's different industries there. About how many users you guys have? Just rough, rough estimate. We have over ten million members, um, and hundreds of thousands that interact on a monthly basis with us. And, and, and you and said you were worldwide. So no, just just no, in the just U.S. US. Just, just in the U.S. US. Okay. Yeah. It's a great place to be because it's a cyclical activity mm-hmm. and the average duration for someone at a place of employment is in three to four years, but the devil's in the details there, right? So if you're, if you're perhaps a millennial and you're, and you're kind of going through the ranks, you're switching jobs a lot. If you're more experienced, you may be more rooted and, and stay on longer. So I'm always hesitant to, mm-hmm. to um, communicate kind of high level stats because yes, it's the, it's the average, but it's really not that helpful in specific scenarios, mm-hmm. but we have hundreds of thousands of people coming um, to our site on a monthly basis, and a lot of them are coming back, 
we have members for a 20 year old company actually celebrating this year. So Congrats, a lot of them, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Coming back, uh, every couple of few years, you'll see them. They're, they're back with IR for their sixth, seventh, eighth time to find uh, the next meaningful employment. So in that, in that time, right, they've, seen the, the you know site change and things like that. Tell me how does the tech stack change over the past 20 years? Obviously what you guys are using today you haven't used in the beginning. No, yeah, it's changed dramatically. Now we had a major rewrite of the whole platform in 2012. Okay. 2012 time frame is when we deployed it. So since then we've iterated considerably the database Layer is probably where we've seen the, the most change. We're, we're predominantly a .NET shop. Mm-hmm. So the core applications, most of the maybe 70 or so independent processes or services, apps that are running are mostly in .NET. We have some Python. We have some other other technologies, but the line shares in .NET. On the database side, we, we had um, met some limits of Microsoft SQL Server years ago when it came to full text search and when it came to the algorithmic changes we wanted to introduce to our matching mm-hmm. algorithms in. And we latched on to Elasticsearch. I'm not sure if you've heard of that. I have, and I was going to ask if that's what you guys are using because that makes perfect sense for what you guys are doing. So sure. Elastic, I stumbled upon them back when they were in version 0.13, I believe. Okay. Uh, they were just eight people at the time. I got trained by the founder of Elasticsearch. Wow. Me and, me and another engineer at the time. This is back in 2013. Okay. And uh, prior to actually going to that on-site training, I, I caught wind of it. I can't, I can't even tell you how, but um, it took a couple of days to index our job content in, and I was started throwing some full text queries at it and it was responding 30 second mill, right? Three millisecond times. And it, they were great results. I'm like, wow, this is beating the pants off of Microsoft SQL Server at the time, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it wasn't long before we were, we were riding... Um, on that stack and we had deployed and had it in production before it was even a a version one software. And at this point they just went IPO a year ago. Mm -hmm. They're a huge company. It's a great product. So we we had a lot of changes in the database area. We still use SQL server for a lot of our transactional processing and have probably three quarters of a billion documents or records in there. Okay. But on the Elasticsearch side, we're riding it pretty hard for match and for any kind of search scenario that, Mm -hmm. that you're using inside the platform. We also use it for data analytics and business intelligence quite heavily. And that's been another huge shift really for us in terms of capability and, and how we're able to actually improve and iterate on our products, on our marketing, on our, on our process itself, because we can just ingest large amounts of data into Elasticsearch clusters. Right. And um, at this point, it's about 20 million events that we, that we send in there each day. Wow. And every kind of interaction event you could think of, registrations, orders, and then we're able to run uh, you know, pipelines or, or process and queries on that real-time data within literally a second or two. It's there and it's at our disposal. Mm-hmm. It's a it's it's an amazing product. I'm not, I'm not a spokesperson for a lot. No, thing, yeah, yeah. But I'm just I was I was floored by it then, and I'm still really impressed. Yeah, now. definitely. I mean, I know the company I work for, we're just getting into that, you, you know, not as much data as you guys are doing, but looking to do, you know, like internal logging for that kind of stuff. And that's the kind of data you just want to throw in there as quickly as possible. And then you can query that as, as needed or whatnot. 
And when you think about Microsoft SQL Server, if anyone's out there, they know there's a limit to that as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And when you're telling me 56 sites, 10 million users, 100,000 users a month, it's like, I imagine that that's a huge bottleneck. And you guys using Elastic is, it makes a lot of sense. And so beyond that, you guys are also using other cloud services, right? Like AWS, Azure, like what yes. other stuff are you using there? Yes, we, we, use, we use both. We have a kind of a hybrid cloud okay. uh, at this point. Most of our infrastructure and processing is actually happening here at ExecuNet. Oh, okay. Um, we so know we know them. Love those guys right. over there. Uh, also been here folks. 20 years. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. So we just had them on the podcast. Uh, and then we have some other workloads in AWS and Azure as well. Okay. Power BI has been a really good thing for us on the, on the analysis side. So our, our mm-hmm. data cubes and processing there for kind of more batch-based processing okay. and longer-term multi-year looks. We use Elastic for Elasticsearch for like last couple of months, last six months, last year. If you want to see some kind of trend over five years, that's usually sitting in a data cube hosted okay. in Power BI. Okay. All right. So you guys are hybrid cloud and, you know, it. it to me, when I think about something like that and you're saying you have a tech team of 25 guys, you know, engineers there, it's... It makes sense because, you know, how do you, how can you compete nationwide with such a small team? And the cloud allows you to do stuff like that. You know, things like Elastic allows you to have a product that can compete with, you know, bigger names like Mosh.com and Indeed, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's awesome to see. And I awesome to see you guys are in there from the get-go, like 0.13. That's yeah. amazing. So, yeah. Another thing, in addition to cloud, making sure that you're on close to the latest version of all your softwares really important. So mm-hmm. you understand the pace of innovation and how much more efficient products and services are getting. And so it, it, it's an easy trap to fall into, especially on the IT ops side. That, hey, this thing's working. Don't touch it. Hey, it's, you know, just leave it have be. Have you found that those upgrades have had a recoding burden or how much recoding do you need to do? Sometimes there are breaking changes, but your alternative is much worse because yes. if, if you're going to take on that next, back, I next just curious what major, major, major version, yeah, there, there are times. Yeah. The, the worst is when you get three, yeah. four, five major releases away, and then you're looking at more of a total rewrite and something that's very daunting. Right. So our, our, our team is, has really done a great job with staying current. It's important to me, and the, it usually pays dividends. Yeah, and that goes into the whole CI, CD process, right? You guys do that continuous integration, continuous deployment, right? We do. And and the whole philosophy around that is to say, if I'm consistently putting something out there and then something did go out that broke, a rollback is very easy. It's not hard at all. Not only is it not hard to roll back and it's not a significant change, but you can continue to push forward even even quicker, right? Is, is that what you're... Correct. Some to? releases are more conducive to well, continuous yeah. deployment than others. Mm-hmm. But at least in your dev or your test environments, having continuous integration and continuous deployment, I, I, would, I would highly encourage it. That way you can run all of your integration tests and your unit right. tests and, and you get the latest bits out there for the product owners or the quality team that wants to you know check on that feature, how's it going. They don't have to wait for an upgrade to, to right. the test sites itself. So it can really, really speed things up. How often do you guys release like new features or bug fixes and things like that? So we push feature releases out every Wednesday. Oh, okay. Uh, every Wednesday. Okay. And then there may be unscheduled releases. If there was a high attention or critical issue, we'll push an unscheduled release out. That probably happens, I want to say, three, four times a month for an unscheduled release. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really no 
well, I say like it's easy. It's no sweat off the backs of my of my IT group. <laughs> but for the most part, if it's on a schedule release, you know, the, the process has been so refined that that they can do that with very low risk. Mm-hmm. And the monitoring, this goes back to the data analytics side. You, you mentioned possibly adopting uh, Elasticsearch in your logging, and that's exactly how we got started with mm-hmm. using it for business intelligence use cases because we just took all those log statements that we had in our in our so- software layer all that time, hooked it into a pipeline that could put it into a repository that you could actually query and, and visualize in real time. Right. And prior to that, it was like diving into Notepad. And then, oh, wait, wait, that file's too big. Now you go, Notepad++. <laughs> like, oh, wait, you know. And that's so, only after there was a problem that you had to go in there. That's that, right. right. And you and if you, yeah, you don't even know you have a problem, exactly, right? So we yeah. have alerting that will go off if certain certain logs, you know, skewed the wrong way. Right, right. It sounds like your sort of agile type approach to your development process is making things faster. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the, the whole concept of being dry, do not repeat yourself, you know, if you're familiar with that, we take that to the nth degree. We really, anything that could be automated, we're going to automate it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's Most engineers lesson. love to automate things that they have to do more than once anyway. So it's good to see that the company wants to do the same thing, right? right. Automate that process. So let's talk a little bit about the software development lifecycle that you guys you know, usually that you do, you mentioned that, um, you guys do agile. We do. We follow agile, not exactly to the T. No company uh, does. No, right? com- okay. <laughs> no company enough. does. <laughs> it's a two week sprint cycle. Okay. So every other Wednesday we have kind of our, our larger feature release releases kind of where the heavy lifting may, may take place. If you will, we have a Kanban team. Mm-hmm. And so they're used to kind of keep the ticket queue down. We try to keep it at, at zero bugs and uh, come pretty close most of the time. Uh, but in the absence of fixing something in high attention, the Kanban team's really working on low complexity, high value user stories. Okay. And so how our, our product development process works itself is everything that development needs to execute on for us will go through the same grooming process. It'll go through the same estimation process. We use Fibonacci numbers, okay. 0 and 13. Anything from a one and down would qualify for the Kanban track uh, okay. if it has high business value. Okay. Okay. And that's sometimes a challenge because yeah. right? you got a lot of, a lot of folks with, with their needs, right. uh, their roadmaps, their time, their time frames. but we, we tend to get along really well. So that's kind of how it works. Everything else would, would have to be put into a sprint. Um, and that's how you come away with uh, weekly releases. That's that's pretty cool. You guys are doing like a hybrid, you know, where you're saying that anything that's pretty quick and easy, you can put on the Kanban board. Anyone can then pick that off. That's right. right. And then they can just do that as needed. Um, and the bigger ticket items, let's say if it's a bigger feature or a bigger bug fix, then that's going to go on a traditional two-week sprint. Yep. And how has that been working for you guys? Our process has been that way for several years now, probably 2014, I want to say, wow. we introduced Kanban. Okay. And, and the reason came out of the feedback from our, our own customers internally, right? Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the weird thing about me being a consultant all this time. I was always dealing with clients when I came in and, and started out in the tech group. My client was marketing. My client was sales. Internal customers. Yeah, internal, yeah. right? Yeah. So what was happening was internal customers, those teams, they would have needs that would be features. Mm-hmm. And they knew that they were at least two weeks out or three weeks out. And so... To better serve them, we introduced the Kanban workflow and we partitioned off some of our developer resources to be dedicated to that. Right. And that way we can kind of make these decisions. If it's high value and it's low complexity, we can send you down this path through Kanban and it's got a very great chance of, of 
deploying mm-hmm. on on the next the next Monday. A couple of things that are unique about our our agile process. Number one, our scrum masters are technical. Okay. And so they're actually part of the development team itself. And that's that's a little unique from from classic classic agile, but it also keeps the role as a developer diverse. So our team, they like some variety. So it's not the same thing every day, every sprint. You kind of get this, this right. rinse and repeat mentality, right? If, if you've been in sprints for, for mm-hmm. months or years at a time, they'll rotate duties. So sometimes they'll work on Kanban and you get to, you know, fix bugs, you know, do Kanban stories, some, some right. easy stuff, some layups, right? And then you'll go back to work in a couple sprints in a row. Okay. And then depending on uh, your experience level, you also could qualify to be a scrum master. And that's providing not just the classic scrum master duties where there's an impediment and we need to communicate mm-hmm. um, and kind of work that out, but also some technical leadership in terms of code reviews are, are done by the predominantly by this, the scrum master themselves. So we kind of mix it up, um, but it's been working for us. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I love to see how like each company does you know, agile very differently, and how you guys have done not only agile but you know Kanban method and and have that as a hybrid. And it's pretty cool to see that your developers can can uh, rotate roles and things like that. Because as you said, as a developer, you know you get into this. You know, months go by. You're like the same sprints over and over mm-hmm. and over. <laughs> so, well, and, and part of the way that we've we've gotten this far is through our iterative approach, and that really transcends. The engineering group that's that's company wide. You asked about changes over the years, and in 2015 we had a revised set of core values, mm-hmm. and being collaborative was one of them. Being transparent was another, and and the transparency actually started from that logging, uh, bringing those logs out to the whole company. They could see what's happening with the software, but not just them. What's happening in marketing? Like how many people are registering? Yeah, what were our sales today? That that was sort of. Um, the basis really for being able to test over that data and then introducing really a test driven philosophy across the organization. So we've, we've iterated our way into this by having the freedom to say, well, what would happen if we let our product folks focus on product management and let the engineers just keep delivering really high quality sprints? They right. could be scrum masters too. And we'll try it. Just be open about yeah, that. Yeah. As long as you can frame it as, as an experiment and right. you know what you're measuring and then you can be transparent and open about that after it's completed. It's good by me. And that's how it works at IR today across all teams. That's, that's pretty cool. You got the combination of, of specialization and engineers being able to backfill other engineers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's a good growth opportunity for, for yeah. our engineers, too, to get some process management experience. Yeah. Can you name, um, you know, I, I love that concept of experimenting and something it goes well, you can iterate on that, right? You can build off that. If it doesn't, then, hey, this didn't work well. We tried it. Let's move on to something else. Can you name anything that you're like, yeah, this didn't work out. We thought it would, but it, it just didn't. Well, when it doesn't work out, there's always a learning behind it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the most important thing to remember. And that, that really gives people the freedom to uh, actually try new things, yeah. right? So they're, they're, not, they're not afraid. So something that, that surprised us, we tested Amazon Pay about eight months ago okay. and thought that that could really work for our, some of our products and services on the candidate side because Amazon is hugely popular. I'm afraid to say I'm ordering stuff from there all the time. I imagine all of us have an account on Amazon, right? <laughs> That's why. <laughs> so, you know, when we tested, we, we tested PayPal long ago, it was, a, it was a great success for our B2C products. Mm-hmm. And, and we were patiently waiting on 
when we thought the time was right and turned out not not very successful. It's funny you say that because I've, I've seen that feature in other products, not, not yes. iHeart, but just other places. And I always, I'm always like, um, yeah, no. <laughs> it's not interesting. Right. Because I'm just like, not that I have anything against Amazon. Like no. I trust Amazon with a lot of data, a lot of financial data as well. And I do a lot of purchasing on there. But then when it comes to making a purchase on a third party site using Amazon, to me, that seems foreign. It's like something I would use PayPal for. Or I would much rather put my own credit card in there, you know? Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, Amazon, it's 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 something that they're trying to do. And I don't think they're being very successful for that. Being established reason. has its advantages, you know? And that's true for PayPal. It does, you know? yeah. But that's funny. You guys tried that. You're like, yeah, this did not work out, you know? And those experiments, they go through very quickly and easily because it's, it's a... It's a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't matter whose idea it is. Uh, right. In my mind, ideas are pretty cheap, and and it's really about the execution of it, right? Absolutely. Uh, and in, with a 20-year-old company, and we have a lot of long-tenure staff, ideas are cyclical, too. So just because we never moved forward with it 10 years ago doesn't mean we shouldn't try it today. Just because it, it lost six years ago, like in the case of this Amazon Pay button, mm-hmm. and we might, we'll might we probably find ourselves testing that in another three, four years. Yeah, I imagine you if, would. As long as you have the technology and the process to do it efficiently right. and you trust the results, which we do, uh, then we'll bring it back up on deck and, and try it again and see if consumers <laughs> have been sort of retrained that this Someone is okay like me. <laughs> um, and this is actually helpful, not scary. Yeah, that's right. I'm telling you, it's it's just, I don't know what it is. Not that I don't trust Amazon or I'm sure it's all secure. It's just like, wow, that's, I just haven't done that before. And it's probably not until I do it at least one time that I'll be comfortable to do it again. When it again. stops being strange and scary yeah. for a critical mass of the public, then they'll adopt. Right. You're right. And yeah. and they've been successful before. Amazon yeah. Video, mm-hmm. you know, Prime. They, they've they've evolved. Oh yeah, and, and gone beyond just e-commerce. And so we'll give them some time. Absolutely. Yeah. So yes, yeah, I mean, speaking of Amazon, I mean, those guys. They, I'd imagine, they know what they're doing when it comes to testing different features, just like mm-hmm. you guys are doing. Let's talk about that. Like you know, your your process in terms of testing and experimenting. Um, A/B testing. I yeah. know you guys do do that very much. So we do a lot of A-B testing over our digital experiences with our particular framework, which we, we built ourselves. It's riding on top of the logging framework that we codenamed Timber. So Panther, if someone likes a cat, it happened at a hackathon. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we got it off the ground and, and one of our developers wanted to name it Panther. So we did. And here we are years later. Uh, we can very easily test any digital experience and it doesn't have to be just a web app. We can test Windows service or okay. a console, any kind of process. For example, our matching algorithm on the candidate side has gone through over 25 iterations. We win overall about 60% of the time. So we fail quite a bit. Okay. When you say we, you win, what do you mean by that? So when I say we win, uh, we mean through the data, we achieve a level of statistical significance that tells us we are almost certainly right and trusting the results of this data. Okay. So when you when you collect a lot of data, you will see all of your different uh, treatments. There's the control in the experiment, right? Mm-hmm. Going back to kind of high school. Yeah, high school days, right? Yeah. You got the control yep. and then you have a number of treatments. And if it's just a two-way, then we call it an A, B or three-way would be A, B, and C if, if you right. like. When you start collecting that data and you can, you can use tools that are freely available online ahead of time to understand how many samples you're going to need to collect. 
to achieve a certain statistical level of confidence. Okay. And we like to try to get to the 95th percentile there. So we wait and it's really exhilarating to watch the data come in and see how the reports change. And once we reach our sample size, we'll look at the results Mm -hmm. and uh, then kind of make our decision. But oftentimes it's not that simple. In the case of the Amazon button test, it was pretty simple because we were just looking at purchases. Right. But many of our many of our A/B tests, you'll see that you may increase one particular key metric, but then something down funnel actually takes a different turn. Right. Right. And so that's pretty common for us. And the way you work through the process is to write a user story saying, "Here is the change I want to make, and we've decided to test this change," which a lot of our Iterations on the platform go through a testing approach, mm-hmm. especially if there's room for opinion on this is better. I think we should move the button to the right. I think we should add a new search by this feature, you know, mm-hmm. search by that. So we'll, we'll decide to test it as a way to really trust that this is a net improvement for our customers. You write the story, you have a hypothesis, mm-hmm. which in the case of the Amazon button would be really simple. Amazon is a trusted consumer company, tons of, of people have prime memberships at credit cards on file. Mm-hmm. We think adding a button is going to increase signups because they don't have to get their wallet out right. and actually punch their credit card in, especially on a mobile phone, right? That's that's where you would think the value would be behind. You think it through with a storyline in the beginning, but when the data finally come in, you have something objective that you could run with. It's not guesswork after that. Mm-hmm. And it's good to have an exercise once you see the data come in to try to draw a conclusion about why the data did what it did. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you mentioned, you touched on it earlier, that you, you can't always know, right? You can you can sit around and have a few different best guesses, but it's, it's still a great exercise because that's part of that learning experience. And then we, we then take that knowledge and that experience and move on to the next iteration, on to the next test. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you mentioned when you're doing A-B a- testing and experimentation, it's, like you said, going back to the high school you know, concept of a hypothesis, testing that, and then mm-hmm. running to a conclusion. Not to oversimplify that, but you know, what are some of the pitfalls that you've seen, whether it's an iHire or other companies do when it comes to something as simple as A-B testing? One of the pitfalls is not having your measurements in place. So okay. you really need whatever the hypothesis is, whatever the nature of the test is, you need to have a good set of metrics that you're going to track. And it's healthy not just to track your key metric. It might be easy registrations. If you're a marketer, you change the landing page, you want to increase registrations. Right. But there may be some down funnel metrics that you also want to see in case the shift in the mind of that prospect or that customer ends up sending them down a completely different path. What if they all register and they don't engage in your emails. But you, in the you, end, basically, you know what success is supposed to look like, so you know whether or not you've reached it. That That's correct. Yeah, yeah so that's a pitfall, not, not knowing what to measure mm-hmm. and not having those measurements in place. Another thing that can be particularly dangerous with sound A-B testing program is to have too many tests running at the same time yeah. in a close spot. Right. right. And we've had times where we're running eight to ten tests at one time, but we're doing so pretty delicately and making sure that they're not colliding and creating too much noise in the data with our particular framework, we can actually in sort of a multivariant way, understand the impact of one test into the next when it comes to the samples. And, and, and so uh, we try to avoid that though, because it just ends up requiring you to collect more data. It's going to take you longer to trust the result because you're going to need more data to overcome the noise in there when you start mixing too many experiments in the same particular customer journey. 
the same time. Right. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I, I we've done some A-B testing and sometimes, you know, people would – something as simple as I want to change a couple things on the page. I'm like, whoa, hold on there because when you do that, how do you measure one page to the next? You know, you, You're 100% right. right. That's a huge challenge. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say we have a number of small tests and we'll have that same dialogue as, as a team. And, and our grooming process, we have – our engineers in there. We have product, marketing, sales, customer success. We have one representative from each core department, regardless of the changes going through. Mm-hmm. And that's helpful from a diversity standpoint to get a lot of thoughts and, and, and questions out there on the table. There are times where someone wants to run an experiment. They do exactly that. They change three elements on page. And so we just have a conversation about that. Sometimes they'll split into multiple tests, which is going to elongate their roadmap, right? Whatever it is they're trying to achieve, through the hopeful wind that they, that they want. If we cut it up into multiple tests, it's going to take longer. Sometimes we'll just take a swing for it and have more of a radical test where we, we may shave off weeks or months from someone's roadmap or someone's strategy or possibly even a business model. So I mean, try some, some radical things there where you're changing so many things that you'll never exactly know unless you want to go back and, and retest it. But at the end of the day, if those key metrics win, if you get more registrations, more, more sales, if you help someone find more jobs, click on more jobs, whatever your metric is, right. at the end of the day, you've just advanced your roadmap significantly by kind of rolling the dice. It's a bit of a gamble, really. We try to have a balance there. Every once in a while, do some radical things. It makes it kind of fun, too. It's kind yeah, of serious. Definitely. That is fun. And it's, it's awesome to see. Like it, it encourages this environment of you know, you have ideas, let's put that out there and let's experiment with it. You know, you can do that very quickly and if it doesn't work out, I don't look like an idiot. You know, it That's just, right. just didn't look, it just didn't work out, you know. And in IR, those ideas can come from anyone, from mm-hmm. anywhere. We could have a developer suggest something to the marketing team. Uh, have you seen this? Like this? Not this competitor, but I was on Amazon and they just had this new feature that allowed me to find products even faster. Have you seen that? Oh, wow, that's great. Send it to the product team. Let's try it. Mm-hmm. in the job search use case and see if it works. So right. it doesn't matter where the ideas come from. Do you sometimes find, because uh, going back to the, the verticals you guys have, right? Do you sometimes find doing experiments in one industry may not translate well to another? Absolutely. Uh, we do. And given unlimited resources, I'd have way more people working on mm-hmm. all 56 and, and, and specialized a lot of times when we're now analyzing the results, we'll look at it more on the aggregate okay, and make sure that on the aggregate, this is uh, this is good for, for everyone. And, and if we see some hot spots where this is really training bad, we can retest just in there and make sure that it gets validated because most of the time it wouldn't have statistical significance all by itself. If you imagine slicing the data by 56, you're going to have that many less samples. Mm-hmm. So you usually have to have a retest and see if that uh, anomaly really is going to hold true. Other times we'll use configuration, which there's a lot behind the platform to say, these sites are going to behave like this. This site's going to behave like that. Um, Not in code, but in in more of a manageable configuration base uh, itself. And and we'll we'll, we'll do that quite often as well. Sounds like with your logging, though, you have the data. If you wanted to split out the verticals, you could do that and just accumulate enough until you did reach the critical mass of samples that were needed for each of the individual verticals. You're absolutely right. So another part of what we do with the test testing program is if we don't have a test on deck, say there's nothing in the way and we have our results, but there's a few sites that are looking 
like they're performing worse. And we'll ask ourselves, okay, what's the, what's the test roadmap look like? Is there anything on deck? Is there anything sitting there queued up that's waiting as an impediment, waiting on this other test to finish? If there's not, we'll just let it keep going. We'll just keep collecting data. And, and that will just strengthen our, our trust in the results and, and ultimately get to the bottom of what we didn't like with a handful of those sites. <laughs> Do you sometimes see that, that some verticals under overperform than others? We absolutely do, and it has a lot to do with the customers, which are varied quite a bit across the 56. And even inside of the, the 56, there it, it can depend your hourly type roles. Okay. The behavior of candidates there is a lot different than some of your professional roles. Right. Um, so we see differences in, in, in that way. And that, that could even play a role in terms of the industry itself, right? Maybe this industry is not performing well in general in the, in the U.S. versus another, and that's that could be... Right, another variable you guys have to account for. Absolutely good. Geography is another one, although for the most part, it's more split into metropolitan type behavior, you know, your big cities okay. versus uh, in, in your rural areas. You see some, see some differences there behaviorally. Okay. So you mentioned, uh, you know, with these verticals, you guys have all this content, right? Mm-hmm. You have an in-house content aggregation team and some, you know, spidering job content for clients like let's talk a little bit about that how do you guys source it you, you really did touch on this before on how you guys can sh- um syndication yes. right from jobs so that's one is there are there other methods yeah so we'll, we'll accept data feeds from partners oftentimes our employers especially in the the mid-market and, and up where they have hundreds of jobs and they want to use our advertising products and services it's a huge time sink back to the time, the time component for them to have a team sitting there manually punching in all the jobs. At the same time, they don't have the resources or expertise to produce us XML where we can take in a nicely formatted file and get it right in down through a pipeline. So our content aggregation team, that's a, we have a couple different technologies there. They can actually spider and crawl a site just like Google would. Um, and then we, we parse parse the job content out and send it down the pipeline. And a couple seconds later, it's it's on the site. So they spider over 10,000 sources a day. Wow. This is pretty large scale. And that takes years to build up with a team of our size there, which is five or six okay. on that team. But um, it takes years and years to, to kind of build up all those agents. And it's a constant maintenance cycle as, as sites change and evolve because it'll break the spiders, right? So they need to be retrained. Pretty neat there. Yeah. So, I mean, it just sounds like between that, your logs, like just a bunch of stuff, you just, you have an enormous amount of data. Swimming in data. Swimming in data. Terabytes and terabytes, <laughs> billions and billions of documents. Yeah. But it's great. And data analysis. I can't really imagine it any other way at this point. You know how that happens to you. Once you achieve a new level of efficiency or you adopt a new technology, the thought of, Going back, the, the decisions that we've we've made and how we've been assisted through the data are so critical. Right. Um, no one's a genius. I'm far from it. It's it's really the the data and the analysis that's that's been our, our guiding light and our, our freedom, our ability to test anything right. quickly and accurately. Yeah, and I mean it. It you guys, you know, you would have let's say your instinct, your gut tell you that I think this is the direction we should go, but then you're falling back to actual data. To make your decisions, it's to what's giving you that kind of not a full roadmap, but something to say, all right, we can trust that where we're going, the data is telling us this is the right way to go. That's absolutely right. 
Trust is really important prior to some of our current repositories and, and frameworks. If you don't have reporting that you trust. Mm-hmm. Or data that you trust. Right? Well, yeah. or data, yeah, yeah right, both. Uh, if you don't have it, as soon as that marketing team loses loses trust in it or product or sales, they'll stop using it. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily everyone's natural inclination to be so so data driven. Um, it's important that it's it's very fast, it's timely, it's, and it's accurate and trusted. It takes some time to build that up too. Right, for absolutely. any organization to think about really going headfirst into data driven culture, um, it's not something that's going to happen over a period of days or weeks. It's something that sort of grows over months um, and then it's quick to lose so you got to protect it you got to keep it available and keep it accurate if there's any when people find little things that might be wrong or inaccurate about it you have to be proactive as an engineering group to unearth that issue fix it and then move on if you don't want to sweep it under the rug that's that is not the right way to approach that um, although it's pretty tempting sometimes, right? Right, so, right. But, yeah, I imagine so, yeah. Definitely not the, the right way to, to, to go about it. That's good. And that's why you guys are, are here thriving 20 years in, right? That's right. It's amazing to see that. You, know, you guys are here in Frederick. You know, let's talk about a little the community itself. I know you guys are involved with uh, Tech Frederick as well, right? Yes. And I think the next networking event, right, is going to be I believe it's November 4th. Yeah, well... September, September, yeah. September, September, yeah. September 4th. Yeah. Hosting, hosting Frederick in our, our downtown historic building, which, which we're pretty excited about. It's the uh, old bottling works building. That's right behind where live at five is I've been located. there one time. So you have been yeah, there. Okay. Been there once, yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. So that's coming up and, um, Tech Frederick's been great. I know David David Fox has been very active and mm-hmm. quite a few others are starting to, to show up in the Tech Frederick games and the fall time frame has been a huge hit. We've, have you done it? Uh, I have not. I, I've Should. been unable to participate, but we sent two teams last year. Okay. And uh, we've always had a team since it started and everyone raves about it. It's a great time. Yeah, I did it for the first time last year or yeah, last year and it's amazing. I've seen plenty of videos and, and photos, so I, I get a good chuckle out of it when, when they come back to show me how well they've done. So. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. Like, like you mentioned, you know, David, I, I've known him and I know Mark, you know him as well from the meetup groups. You mm-hmm. know, they're very active and, you know, talk about the tech scene there. Um, and to see you guys involved as well is, is pretty awesome. Um, can't wait to see you guys again at, at your office at the next Tech Frederick networking event. It'll be here before we know it. It will, right? Yes. Summer's <laughs> almost over. Oh, don't tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So with that in mind, um, you know, like you guys have been here for a long time. You yourself have been working at iHire for a while. You know, I myself have been in this community for about nine, 10 years. And I've seen such an explosion on the tech scene. And I'm sure you've seen it too. Where do you see the tech scene going next five years? Next five years? I I was born and raised here in Frederick and and it's not the same place that it used to be. And uh, folks always thought it was agriculture and that's it. All right. Uh, It's been changing rapidly and we're in a great spot geographically. I mean, this is a prime area. Frederick is a wonderful place to live. I think so You're too. You're an hour away from two huge cities. Mm-hmm. We have four great seasons. There's hills, there's there's lakes, there's rivers, there's everything. So I think it's just going to keep continuing and especially knowing that a lot of people commute down the road each and every day and more power to them. Bless right. them. Uh, I, I don't know that I could do it. 
and part of it's probably recognition of the lack of opportunities here, but that continues to increase right. um, year over year. So I'm hopeful that everyone eventually can get to uh, really meaningful and challenging employment right here, right here in the city. Yeah. And as more businesses come here and, you know, they'll need uh, employees that can go to iHire, right? That's right. <laughs> Put their job listings on there and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So it's, I, I agree with you too. Like I've been here, you know, nine years. I remember when I first moved here, the North Frederick where Wegmans used to be all fields. You go there now, it's probably one of the worst places for traffic. You know, it's huge That's now, right. right? And to see that and to see, you know, a place like here, like Fitzy and things like that, it's just come up. It's just, I'm excited. I, I, I'm excited to see what the next five years will bring in terms of new businesses, current businesses like yourself and how you guys may expand and whatnot. So, Well, technology is one of the fastest growing segments and we see that in our, in our data and information. We mm-hmm. have, there's a really high demand. Uh, in transportation right now, especially mm-hmm. truck drivers and healthcare, that's that's booming. So a lot of companies are looking for for healthcare related talent, especially nursing. But tech's right up there. Well, not to get too off topic, when, while you're talking about that, what do you think about automation in industries like that? You know, you're talking about trucking. That yeah. you know these truck truck drivers may not have a job in the next twenty years, right? I don't have a hugely dystopian outlook on it, but I. I I do agree and foresee that there will be significant reduction in certain types of jobs. And we've already seen it. You, you, go, that, you yeah. go to you, to your Lowe's, your Home Depot, you go to the grocery store, cashiers, there's there's more and more self-service there, mm-hmm. right? So we're seeing it already. Mm-hmm. Um, what I think is maybe more interesting is usually throughout history, when there's some sort of technological innovation or advancement, it usually spawns entirely new industries. Absolutely. It, it usually yeah. creates even more jobs, even though it could have been devastating for the cotton pickers. Right. You know, you end up introducing entirely new types of jobs. Right. Um, and I hire can match those people with those new jobs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. It, Th- it, this it, time around, really you know, we are seeing some new types of jobs. Uh, drone pilots. Drone pilots. Is okay. Yeah. So that's new. And, and that's actually happening in agriculture quite a bit, too. I spoke to a VP of HR just a few months ago trying to find drone pilots. And I had to tell him don't have a site dedicated for that <laughs> right, now. Um, right now. I don't. But I'm not so sure this time around whether it's going to be the same or not. The okay. explosion of, of just AI is exploding. Uh, machine learning technologies and frameworks are getting getting more and more mature. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm not so sure that it is creating new jobs, but this time it feels a little different to me, to be honest. Okay. I guess we'll see, you know, what the future has to hold. But yeah, that's definitely a hot topic because, you know, as automation comes and technology gets more and more advanced and you, know, you think about things like Tesla, right? And their cars. And one day I may not even have to drive my car or even own the car. So right. yeah, how, how, how does that change, right? The industry or industries as a whole or, you know, our infrastructure here. And so that's, it's an interesting topic. I think it speaks to the widening skills gap too, which is a huge problem. Uh, the skills that you needed 10, 20, 30 years ago to find meaningful employment, mm-hmm. um, it's not that easy and it's definitely not that static at this point. No, right. That's, you know, growth focus is one of our core values at iHire and, and it's something that, that we preach a lot about. And that's something I would encourage everyone to continue to have a growth focused mindset. Learning never stops. It doesn't. Know. 
if you stop, it'll just overrun you and you will get to a point where you're so far behind. It's going to be hard to hard to kind of catch back up to sort of that table stakes level of, right. of, of skill, especially in the tech industry. But um, we see that that some some companies that have maybe more hourly positions or manual labor. Um, yes, there isn't as much growth focused mindset there. It's not it's not changing nearly as fast as technology, mm-hmm. but it's still changing. It's just even the utilization of technology um, was uh, working and interacting with company that provides surveys and inspections and they're overhauling the process to have the inspectors use a handheld device to manage where are they going today? Who are my clients? When the contractor needs a new inspection, they don't just call the inspector anymore. And the inspector's not dealing with that. It's going through a centralized system. And this particular person's pretty set in their ways and kind of scrolling about that. Ironically, I'm sitting there behind, like listening to this feedback and this is awesome. (laughs) <laughs> this is going to save this guy so much time. I bet this is really right. going to clean some things up for him and, right. and, and actually help him. But the, the initial reaction to be adverse to new technology is, is pretty common. And just change. hope people get more and more on board with it. Yeah, I think change is hard, right, in general you really know, for, for a lot of people. And that's the one thing that's going to be pretty consistent in the future is change, right? It's going to gonna happen and not only happen, it's going to happen on a happen a lot quicker than it ha- ever has been before. You know, speaking of your site having, you know, sometimes you, you mentioned certain verticals would have resources there. Do you do you guys even look into putting resources in if somebody was interested in getting in that industry, what they can look for, things like that, maybe even local resources that can help them? So we have a content marketing team that's constantly looking for good topics to mm-hmm. to author and just and to spread so we can educate our customers, not just the candidates, but the, but the employers themselves. And we have a number of pieces for folks coming out of college. We actually have a, a student membership that's, that's uh, free oh, okay. for, for college students to try to help them get a leg up and give them some enhanced tools. Cool. Awesome. Well, do you have anything you want to plug in before, before we're done here? No, I really appreciate your time. It's been a great conversation. I could talk about this stuff all day. All so day. Probably, <laughs> One last question then. Any recent purchases of $100 or less that has improved your life? $100 or less improved my life. That's a tough one. Under $100 and making life more fun. Yet another Raspberry Pi. I have some home automation stuff going. Did you get the new version house. or the, the 3B Plus? Uh, uh, 3B Plus, okay. because the 4 was like an alpha, I believe. But there's a op- couple open source projects and Home Assistant. I don't yeah, know if you're yeah. familiar with that. But yeah, yeah. I've had some fun with that and it was a lot easier to adopt. And it's nice to kind of bring in all your bridges and hubs into one place that you can sort of orchestrate absolutely. what you want. So that's the, I don't know if that qualifies. No, absolutely. What, is so, it, what, are you, what are you trying to do with the, the Pi? Uh, just again, home automation, home automation. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just various devices. I, something that was over a hundred dollars or that was really a, a life improvement for me was the aftermarket radio in your car. I mean, it's, it's actually a lot easier than I remember being when I was in high school when usually you try to upgrade your stereo mm-hmm. and all kinds of issues and security systems aren't, aren't compatible and things. And, I ended up not buying a new car, but I got entranced by a lot of the new tech that comes around with cars. And so I ended up with an older car and I wanted Android Auto. And nice. I wanted like really good conversation while I'm driving that's clear instead of the classic, remember the old Bluetooth uh-huh. in your car and you feel like you hear the air and everything whistling by. And 
I'd say it was it was a drop in. That was two or three hundred bucks. You can have your latest and greatest Bluetooth, Android Auto, or Apple CarPlay, and pretty much any car you want. All your steering wheel controls will still work. It's good to I know. Was, I was really impressed. That's that's kind of cheating. That's over your hundred dollar one. Though. Yeah, but the, the Pi was, is a pretty good answer too because yeah. I've I've used that myself, and that's I mean the possibilities there are endless. And the newest really one I've seen, like you said, it's Alpha now. I think they had an issue with their USB-C. They did. Right. <laughs> Which, I, it's only powering the device, but still, the, the problem with it, some power cords may not work as others, and it's just weird. But and I don't think it can sufficiently power the USB devices connected to right. it, which would be kind of a drag if you had to have more, right. more cords, right? Mm-hmm. Less cords is better. Yeah, so I imagine they'll fix that problem pretty soon, but even that device looks like it's going to be, I mean, for... $55, you can get something that almost looks like a PC, you know, that kind of specs that The has. power. It's, yeah. It's amazing. So it's amazing. Yeah. Cool. Well, awesome, Steve. Thanks. Thanks for, you know, being on board and talking about iHire yourself in the process. You know, I, I really enjoyed that. Great. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Right, take care.